0: Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for him all around the world. Uh, If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, We're gonna be in uh, a few places. We're gonna try to Uh, as best as by God's grace as I'm able to simplify uh, what could be a singular point or direction that I feel in my heart this morning. Um, Go ahead and open, let's grab John 17 as a chapter, and then in tandem or in partnership with that, let's grab the whole book of Ephesians, (laughs) for real. Uh, I say that, some of you looked up like, oh yeah, there's no way. Like, yes. So we'll grab John 17, uh, and then we'll grab the whole book of Ephesians. Uh, but as we grab the whole book of Ephesians, majoring, not as if the whole book of Ephesians isn't major, but majoring on Ephesians 4, 1, 2, and 3, walk worthy of the call for which you have been called, and fighting to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that's 1 and 3. And then Ephesians 6, verse 12, which is, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers, principalities, rulers, in the heavenly places of darkness, wickedness, corruption in an unseen realm. Other translations, and I combined a variety of translations, militant forces of wickedness, In unseen places, in an unseen or non-visible realm to the natural human fleshly eye, there is a corrupt agenda, demonic forces. All right, so we'll grab John 17, the book of Ephesians, as we'll in some ways helicopter journey over the book of Ephesians, but majoring on Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6. uh, Because I really feel as if the Lord would like for me to attempt to unpack some things pertaining to spiritual warfare and how we are, as the church, but more so than just a corporate entity, as individual believers to tend to or shepherd well our hearts and minds. To shepherd well our hearts and minds. Uh, As we do that, we were having a conversation when we landed the other day, and when I say we, it was me, and... And Stephen, as we uh, came out of the airport after we flew up. Um, and we were having a conversation in the van and just discussing, uh, more so, I was sharing from my heart, the seriousness with which I sense God's purposes in me being privileged to be here with you once again. Uh, next month will be eight years of walking together uh, and the frequency of being able to contribute or to participate in whatever small measure unto or into what the Lord is doing here in what is one of the greatest cities across the world. Um, right? Maybe maybe you do recognize, but I I get it at times when you're in the midst of the forest, it's difficult to recognize or to see or appreciate the trees. Um, But New York City is one of the most powerful and prominent cities across the global landscape. And so I recognize the seriousness from the Lord in the privilege of being able to continue to come and to contribute, to be with you, um, to walk with your pastors and their family day by day in a real covenant devotion, which only could be made possible by the Lord and his sustaining grace and power. Um, And so we really honor what God has done over years and years in our ability to continue coming Uh, And even more than that, the relationship behind the scenes that has weathered a variety of storms but has come through bright shining by God's grace. Um, And so we consider it to be a privilege. Um, And just to be honest with you, there is no other church in all of the world. uh, For all of the, uh, if I could say it this way, dozens and dozens, uh, few hundred churches that we feel connected to around the world, there is no other church, Church Family that sits in our hearts and our attention, and in the place of our devotion before the Lord, like this church family does. And we recognize that, and it's not casual, it's incredibly serious on our part, because we recognize God's purpose in it, uh, and we recognize a part of being faithful to the Lord is being faithful to what the Lord has put together and designed for our walking together and our being together. Um, And so we really love your pastors with all of our heart, and consider it a joy once again to be able to be here with you. I don't consider myself just to be uh, another guest popping in to fulfill some Sunday gig or some random preaching opportunity. Uh, It really is a joy, and I sense God's purpose in it. Uh, And for that, there's a sobriety and a seriousness that settles in my heart at the consideration of what God has done. Amen? Amen. Righty. Uh, as we're going to look at the scriptures this morning again, I feel I have a mission to describe some things about spiritual warfare, and then how they pertain to you and I as believers that are a part of a family that's been purchased by blood, and how shepherding our hearts and minds well before the Lord, and bringing things captive and making them obedient to the person of Jesus. Uh, has real bearings in our day-to-day life in the success of what God is establishing relationally in the midst of us as a family, that He's purchased with His own blood. And I say, as a family, because Jesus has been promised something. And I know that you and I recognize that the lamb that was slain, he is due an inheritance. He is due a reward. May the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. The reward of the suffering of the lamb that was slain is a people that have been purchased with blood. We find in Revelation 5, they're singing songs in 8, 9, and 10. And these are things that we've discussed in prior or previous times. But in Revelation 5, 8, 9, and 10, they're singing songs to this man that is worthy. He is seated on the throne and they are ascribing to him worth and value and glory for they say as they sing, you have done what was previously thought to be impossible. You've taken a weak, fragile, broken human creation and you have radically transformed them by you being willing to humble yourself and become one of them. We understand that Jesus is the man Jesus, but he chose to be the human Jesus to identify in the depths of brokenness in the fragile weakness of humanity. And in Revelation 5, they say, you've actually done it. You've taken this human condition and you've become one of them. You've laid down your life for them. You've been raised from the dead on behalf of them. You've ascended on high where you are now exalted forever. And we are now awaiting the release for his return. So we understand this. But the scope of Revelation 5 in their song is you have transformed the human creation. You've given them your spirit. You've conformed them to your image and made them to be like you. You have purchased a people for God with your own blood. And Peter would tell us that once we were not a people, but now we are a people. And we're not just a people of our own agenda, a people of our own ambition, but we are now the people of God. And we are now a kingdom of priests unto our God. And the idea is that God has saved us to make us something that we could have never been without the life and the work and the power of his own spirit now jealously residing on the inside of us. That God is making us something. And the consideration is at the end of the age, you will not just bring him something that you've done, but you will bring him something that you have become. There will be many that have done, Matthew 7, for many on that day will say to me, did we not do? But he will say, I never knew you. So the idea is that we're not just saved unto new activities with a Christian slant. It's not that we will just bring him something we've done. We will bring him together, yes, individually, but together what we have become. And Paul, at the end of Colossians 1, would say, this is what I'm striving for. I recognize that there's power that God has granted to me. There's grace that God has poured out on me. And I am striving with every ounce of effort that I can use in partnership with God's grace to bring him something at the end of the age. And he says, I want to bring him a people that look like him. I want to preach and teach And admonish with all of God's power and wisdom to present to him every man or a people that are complete or mature in Christ. And in John 17, we find Jesus praying for the people that he knows he's been promised. Jesus has been promised a people and that people is a family. That people is the people of God. That people is not an event, that people is not a franchise, that people is not some missional objective or endeavor, that people is not an activity, that people is a family, that people is a people redeemed, rescued from every tribe, nation, and tongue, purchased by blood, now becoming the possession of the man Jesus. And he is taking this people, that Previously to catching a glimpse of him and through a born again experience coming alive from the dead to him, he is taking this people who were once deeply entrenched in the world system. Deeply entrenched in a sin-saturated, self-centered way of living and behaving, he is taking this people and wildly transforming them and conforming them now to make them comparable to himself. Because this is what he's been promised. A people that are comparable to him. Not just a people that declare their affection. Because you can declare your affection And still be incredibly loyal or incredibly worldly. Declaring your affection does not mean that you live with covenant loyalty. You can say, Jesus, I love you, and still be as worldly as anyone else. You can say, Jesus, I adore you. You can attend all of the events, but still live in an incredibly self centered way still live with your own agenda, still live with you at the center, still live to where everything else is orbiting around your own desires and dreams and ambitions. It is possible to declare affection and yet still live from self-centeredness. But the idea is that they will not just declare affection, but they will be comparable. And being made to be comparable requires an ongoing process of transformation. Because God is making us something. And this is what we find in John 17 is that Jesus is jealous for the people that he's been promised. And it's important for you to understand the jealousy that Jesus has for what it is that his father has promised him. Because he's been promised a people. And as he prays through the whole chapter really of John 17. Extraordinary. You find God talking to God about us. You find the son and the father in a conversation about you and me. And he says certain things. As you read through the chapter, in verse 11 we find that he wants them to be one, but not just one in their own way. He wants them to be one even as he knows him and his father are one. So the reference point for the unity that we now enjoy is because of the vantage point of what we are able to gaze upon in the fellowship of the Trinity. We understand family and unity because of who God is himself. Not because of our own family experience, not because of our own broken past or incredible past, not because of other ideas of mission and vision and allegiance that the world and its systems have to offer, not because of preferential bonds of commonality or other unique platforms where unity may be communicated or experienced. It's not that we're one because we all like the same sports team. Because in this room, we don't. But the grace of God is greater than our sports team preference. I'm a Boston fan. It's like, oh, now we understand. It's okay, we're gonna get to Ephesians 2. He's destroyed all of the eternal enmity, all of the walls of division have come down. We no longer pledge our allegiance to a jersey. But the world has a variety of ways to offer unity. And if we're not careful, we end up subscribing to a unity that is less than what the power of God is able to produce. We end up subscribing or giving our allegiance to a place of commonality that is not the actual unity that Jesus is praying for. Where we find common interests where we find platforms of prejudice or preferential commonality. But Jesus is not praying for commonality. He's praying for a supernatural unity that could only be made real if we enter into the fellowship by the Spirit now that we gaze upon in the Trinity. And this is what he says. Make them one even as we are one. So the reference point for unity is now the Trinity. And now we carry a responsibility that is mind-boggling because as you look at the church as a family, the church as a family should make the Trinity believable because we are a diverse people, yet we are one we are unified in a way that the world can't produce they can't buy, they can't manufacture, it must be that God is in the midst of us reconciling all of our brokenness and differences into himself and then into the lives and hearts of one another so that the relational experience we enjoy as a family could only be made possible by the power issued out of God's own life because of what we see in the Trinity. And this is what Jesus is praying for. I'm not trying to get super deep and theological. Trust me, that's not what I'm trying to do. But this is what Jesus is praying for. Make them one as we are. As we are. Not as you choose to be. Not only as your own preferences or insecurities are preserved. Right? Because the depth of our grace in relationship can only be known once we've reached the threshold of our offenses. Because if your relationship is only as strong until you've been offended, then you not or you have not yet actually applied the grace of God to make us one even as Jesus recognizes him and his father are one. Because if the relational experience is only as weak as your next offense, then you had something that the world can mimic. Because that's the system of the age. Preserving our self-centeredness, our own agendas, always making accommodation for all of our own unique thresholds of offense. But Jesus is saying that he's going to do something by his own spirit in the midst of a family where we have every reason to not be together, yet we're still together have every reason to check out because of offenses but by God's grace he's building his church where we've reached the threshold we've reached the boundaries we've gone through the trenches of relational experiences together where I got my feelings hurt where I was misunderstood where I was accused where I was betrayed where I was offended but yet I chose to look upon the man Jesus yet I chose to receive grace and power by his spirit yet I chose to go love and to be meek and to be humble and to be kind yet I chose to embrace the cross yet I chose to die to myself yet I chose to find his wisdom yet I chose to mature in love yet I chose to grow and to rise from the dead beyond the grave of my own offense Jesus is saying make them one because I'm gonna plant them in the world and they're gonna be a sign and a wonder As a matter of fact, I'm not praying for them to come out of the world. I'm actually commissioning them into the world the same way that I sense an apostolic commissioning on my own life. He says, I'm not praying that you take them out, but I'm praying that you actually keep them in it. I'm sending them in. I'm planting them. Apostello, apostolic commissioning them into the world. Preserve them or keep them from the wicked one. And then you continue on. And in 21 and 22, he's praying for this oneness again. And he says, Father, make them one. Even as you're in me, I'm in you. They will be in us. And they will be one even as we are. And in 22, he says, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them so that they can be perfected In maturity maturity is in the idea of unity in the context of what Jesus is praying for maturity is not simply in the development of our idea of our own individual gifting you can be incredibly gifted and incredibly immature because it's not your own gifting that tests and or authenticates your level of maturity It's the relational context in which the glory of God in context to what Jesus is praying for, the glory of God is abiding and accomplishing his own agenda to make us a family that is a sign and a wonder planted in every city throughout the nations. The idea is there's something about the idea of family that tests our current supposed level of maturity. And this is what Jesus is praying for. A family that's going to be a sign and a wonder. A family that as they relate to one another, this is the Ephesians 2 reality. Their lives knit together, creating a habitation for God. The idea is relationship, and we'll get there. But this is what Jesus is actually asking his father for. And he says, if I get this, then the whole world is going to know that you sent me into the world... That I actually belong to you, that you guys are mine, and everything that my father says is true. He says, when I get this family that is mature in their unity, which is the reconciliation by God's grace of every reason we may be able to justify to be hostile to one another or divided in our hearts and minds not just necessarily to be close in proximity in a variety of events over the close of the week or the course of the week but relationally to experience God's grace in the ongoing development of our unity and maturity as a family that will display the glory of God a purposed purchased people by blood and this is what Jesus is praying for and if we don't understand what Jesus is praying for, then it will be incredibly difficult to interpret Paul's words at the end of Ephesians 6. Because Paul prays towards the end of Ephesians 6, and as he's exhorting them, we have these words that we're incredibly familiar with. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but there's the understanding that there's a demonic hierarchy, that there are rebels in an unseen realm, That there's corruption, there's wickedness, there is an agenda or an inspiration seeking to derail God's purposes. Where? In a people planted in every city throughout the nations of the world. And if we don't understand what Jesus has been promised and what he's actually jealous for in the consideration of what the Father says is his inheritance, then we misapply or misinterpret Paul's words in Ephesians 6. Because he says, we wrestle not. We, meaning in the context of family as a people. Yes, specifically talking to those that are believers in Ephesus. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. But there's powers. There's principalities, there's rulers, there's a demonic hierarchy in an unseen realm. And this demonic hierarchy is hell-bent on not seeing the intercession of Jesus answered. Hear that again. John 17 is the intercession of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that we now have a great high priest who has entered into the heavens being the sacrifice himself, and that he is now the eternal intercessor or the one who ever liveth to make intercession. In John 17, we get a glimpse of the eternal intercessor as a human on the ground interceding, reminding his father that he understands the price that needs to be paid in order for him to possess or to purchase the people that they desire with his own blood. And he's reminding his father, I know what my inheritance is and I'm jealous to have it. And I recognize that this is the way. I understand that I must drink the cup. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him is may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his suffering. It's the reward of his suffering that's the joy that caused him to endure. And in John 17, we find the intercession of Jesus. And he's interceding for this people. I have to have them. And in verse 24, he would actually pray it this way. I have to have this people because I want them to be with me where I am. I have to have this people because I want them to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory and behold me forever and ever and ever. And we find that Jesus has paid the price to have the people that are the promise of his inheritance. This is the reality of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is God has done his part. That's the way that Ephesians 1 opens. God has done his part, he has overcome, humbled himself to become a man, entered into the human story in a human vehicle on behalf of His eternal purpose to have a people for His Son. We can now, those of us who've been granted the deposit of the Holy Spirit, we can now know what is the mystery of His will that was previously locked up in the wisdom of God until unleashed through the wisdom of His own cross. And we now Look upon the exalted man, Jesus, who came humbling himself in a human vehicle to lay down his life on behalf of the eternal purpose that God has for humanity. To purchase a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and to make them the comparable companion to the son that he loves. God has done his part. Jesus has laid down his life. He has been crucified. It is God's wisdom, the cross, the blood, conquering the grave, demolishing the accusation of the enemy, resurrecting, demolishing sin, even death. Oh death, where is your sting? And not just resurrected, but ascended into the heavens. And Ephesians 1 ends with the idea of the exalted and ascended man Jesus. It's there at the end of Ephesians 1. And now, that man Jesus, that God raised from the dead, has ascended into the heavens, and he has been exalted above every name, every power, every principality, every ruler, every thing In the heavens, the earth, below the earth. The man Jesus has been exalted. He is alive from the dead and ascended and reigning on high. God has done his part. Well, that's important. Because the way that Ephesians 1 communicates the reality of God's part in the man Jesus and him being alive from the dead and now exalted into the heavens is now the way that we interpret what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2 begins with, and you too were dead. Come on, make the connection. Jesus is alive from the dead, exalted above the powers, reigning on high above the rulers of the age, He is a man alive from the dead, ruling above powers and principalities. He is enthroned, and he's been promised a people. Well, we get the description of that people in Ephesians chapter two. And you too were dead in your trespasses. You were living a self-centered, sin-saturated and satisfied life. You were self-indulgent in the way that your feelings of your flesh and the thoughts of your mind governed all of your quality of life and your dreams and pursuits. Whatever you felt you wanted or thought you should have or do is the way that you created the trajectory for life and passion and pursuit. But God. And Paul is communicating that at one point, Everyone in the human experience lived that way in the human condition. Everyone but God. Everyone lived under the tyranny of the powers of the air. Everyone lived as a prisoner or a captive through the influence of rulers, powers, principalities. Well, Mike, I don't like the way that sounds. That's the reality of the human experience and condition. There are two categories that are a part of one conversation and those two categories Paul lays them out you are either dead in your trespasses living as a prisoner under the influence of powers and rulers or but God is your your Passover so to speak to come out of that category and to now be alive to God there is no other conversation There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. The gospel and the Bible makes it black and white. A million ways to die, two ways to be raised. You either raised in Christ or out. And Paul says, at one point you all lived there. Living under the tyranny of the powers of the air. John in 1 John 5 would call it the sway of the wicked one. Paul in Romans 12 would say, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Talking to believers. So there's a pattern to the world system. There's a sway that powers and rulers are creating. There's an ebb and a flow, so to speak. And those who go against the current get crucified. Because powers and rulers are longing to baptize everyone that they can influence into a pattern into a way or a sway, into a system that Paul would consider belongs to the world and the system of the age. And here he says, all of you lived being a prisoner to the current. But here's the description of the current. It's a self-indulgent way of life, meaning whatever you feel and however you think. It's your truth. It's your feelings. It's everything relevant to the way that you want to interpret things. It's everything relevant to how you want things to be understood or how you feel things need to be considered and then applied. But this is a result of what we recognize to be the inheritance of the curse and the corruption of Genesis 3. When you eat of the tree, you'll be just like God, being able to think for yourself. That's the current. You don't need God's leadership. You don't need his love and the boundaries of the scriptures and his prescription for how we are to experience and to enjoy life. And as I've heard it said, we no longer see the scriptures as a restriction to life and pleasure and enjoyment. But we see the scriptures as the boundary to how we know and experience life and joy and pleasure. And this is what Paul is considering. He says, at one point you were dead, but God has raised you from the dead to where your consideration is you're no longer a prisoner to a self-indulgent way of life. Because that's the captivity. The captivity is whatever you feel is best, give yourself to it. Whatever way you think you want in your own intellect and or interpretation, that's what you should be able to do. But Paul is suggesting that that's a prison. That that is the current leading to the way of death itself. And that at one point we were all dead because we all lived this way. But God has raised us from the dead. This is the language of Ephesians 2. And now we're making the connection between the exalted man Jesus, alive from the dead, reigning above the powers in Ephesians 1, to now there's a people... That he's been promised in Ephesians 2, alive from the dead, no longer living in the prison or under the tyranny of the powers. But now, coming alive, and not just alive in our own way, but alive to God by his spirit, we can now actually be alive from the dead and live above the influence of powers and rulers. Meaning, we no longer have to surrender to the influence of powers and rulers, but because we are alive to God by His Spirit, we can discern the difference. Because the world is full of inspiration. And there are two primary places of inspiration. There is either God's Spirit, a divine life, His agenda, Inspiring and looking to abide or take up residency in a human host. For divine life is longing to find a human host. But so is demonic agenda and inspiration. And if we're not discerning, we will end up yielding to influence that is looking to conform us to system of the age The ways of the world or to take it a step further, even the character of powers, principalities, rulers with wickedness and corruption. And if we're not careful, we end up perpetuating the influence of rulers rather than being discerning and being alive from the dead and rising above them to reign in life's experience. And Paul says you were once all dead but now you're alive from the dead because God has chosen to come and make himself known to you. And he says in Ephesians 2.14, he has preached peace to those of you that were afar off and those who already felt that they were near or these verses leading up to Ephesians 2.14. And now he himself has become our peace, reconciling, all of the eternal enmity into his broken body on the cross, making a mockery of all of the powers and the rulers' hostility seeking to create walls of division. For the eternal walls of division have all come crashing down. And now the reconciliation of the nations finds its expression in being the expression of one new man. And Paul takes note of Jews and Gentiles, which to him is the most absurd thought of reconciliation possible. That God, by his own work, by the power of his spirit, is reconciling the nations, and not just the nations in a general way, but even the most deeply hostile way, considering Jews and Gentiles that God is going to reconcile and create a family that is going to experience a unity, that is going to demonstrate a power that could only be made possible by his own divine life. And that by that life, he is going to have a family for himself. And these are the words that we get. You're no longer foreigners and aliens. But now because of what God has done, you have now been made members of God's house. Co-heirs, joint heirs, now in the mystery, in the promise, in the inheritance. Co-members of God's house. And him knitting your lives together by his own power and spirit is what is creating a unique habitation for himself. And God is creating a habitation in this family that he has promised his son. And so in Ephesians 2, we have the exalted people alive from the dead, living with discernment, no longer being overcome by the influence of powers and rulers. Well, then when you get to Ephesians 3, we find that the church in Ephesians 3.10 bears the responsibility of what Paul's consideration would bring him to say is the manifold wisdom of God. Being made known to rulers... Ephesians 3.10. The manifold wisdom of God through the church is now on display or being demonstrated to say something to rulers and powers. What is he even talking about? The responsibility that the church bears together, relationally, in their unity that brings them to be a family is to remind the rulers and powers that because of what God has actually done, what God has paid for and the power that he has issued in order to make good on the promise that he has made to his son is simply this. That what the father has promised the son, the church is supposed to remind the powers that Jesus is going to get it. That the church is to embody a reality that reminds the powers that though they may try with every effort and influence they have within their arsenal, that they live, they live, they being the church, the church lives by the grace and the power of God's own life and spirit. And that their development will not be derailed by the influence of powers. And that though powers may try, they will not derail what it is that the Father has promised the Son. And this is our responsibility as a church by God's grace. Not meaning something that you can manufacture, something you can work up in a fleshly way, but by yielding to God's life and spirit in the ongoing development of a relational unity that makes us a family, which is in John 17, what Jesus said he gave us glory for, is to remind powers what Jesus deserves, he's going to get it because we're living it. And God has given us his spirit. And the way that he is building us, what he is making us, is a reminder to the powers. That though they may seek to influence us, at the end of the day, God has issued power in order to make good on the promise that he has made to his son. And that is the responsibility that Paul is considering that the church bears in Ephesians 3.10 is to demonstrate a reality that reminds powers, we will not yield to your influence to divide us or to make us uniquely hostile to one another. Because that's what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for unity and oneness. And so in the idea of the intercession of Jesus being answered by a people that are a family, Not a family with unique interests and prejudices and commonality, but a unique family that experiences a glory that is only joyfully made possible by God's own life and spirit and power that in the context of the church as a family, there is a demonstration that powers are reminded of what the Father actually promised to Jesus. And when they see what it is that God says he's going to give his son, it reminds them that they must do everything they can for their days are drawing short. And Paul says the church bears a responsibility to remind powers that God is going to be faithful to give his son what he promised him. Well, this is what we find having such deep meaning in Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, therefore, walk worthy of that call. Well, the therefore creates a relationship to everything that's been previously talked about. You understand therefore in context of the discussion from chapters one to three. And Paul is saying, in light of the exalted man Jesus, alive from the dead, reigning above powers, in light of ...of the exalted people that Jesus has been promised. Alive from the dead, reigning above the influence of powers... In light of the church as a family with the responsibility to live as a demonstration that reminds powers that the exalted man Jesus is going to get the exalted people that his father promised him in light of that exalted people identifying with the exalted man Jesus as the church, as a living demonstration in every city throughout the nations in light of these things. Walk worthy of that call. Walk worthy of that call because that's what you've been called to. Walk in that power. Walk in that reality. And then he says, fight to preserve the unity of the spirit. Why? Because it's what Jesus is interceding for. And if it's what Jesus is interceding for, it should find some bearings in our life together and our life in prayer. A unified people, a unified bride, a unified church, no longer yielding itself to the tyranny of the influence of rulers and powers seeking to compromise what it is that Jesus has been promised by creating division and hostility. Which is why then when you continue to track through Ephesians 4, when you get to verse 17, Paul says, you're actually a new thing. Don't live your life like you used to and like the rest of the world or the Gentiles. Why? They're darkened in their understanding. But he says, you are no longer darkened in your understanding. You're alive from the dead. You've been filled with God's spirit. You carry the mind of Christ, which means you have actual discernment in real time to be able to know the difference between influences seeking entrance and anchoring in your heart and mind. Don't be like them. They're darkened in their minds and in their understanding, given over to futility and perversion because they don't know any better. Perpetuating the darkness and the division Don't be like those guys. You're something totally different now. God's given you his life. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his power. You're alive from the dead. You bear a unique responsibility. God is working something together out between you relationally because of the family that he promised his son. Don't be like those guys. And then he gets into a bunch of practical stuff in how we relate to one another in how we do life together when our lives are knit together. And that's the understanding, is that on the relational platform of life together as a family is where the demonstration of our unity actually becomes a sign and a wonder. And so he has to get into the nitty-gritty details of what life actually looks like and the things that are uniquely presented to us as we are knitting our lives together. And he goes through it. And then at the end of the chapter, he says things like, don't quench the spirit. Which again, we've considered. That's not just the charismatic license to bring restraint to how we want our gatherings to go. Well, you clap when no one else was clapping, you're quenching the spirit. Well, you got up and ran and it wasn't time to run, brother, like you're quenching the spirit. It's a relational context. And Paul is suggesting that there is no greater way to quench the work of the Spirit in the midst of us than to not tend to our hearts and minds because of demonic influence and agenda that wants to disrupt our relational unity because of the promise the Father has made His Son of giving Him a people that are one and comparable to Him. And Paul is suggesting that it is the relational shepherding Of our hearts and minds that brings us to the consideration of quenching the work and the power of God's Spirit and His agenda in the midst of us. Which means we no longer celebrate division. It means we no longer celebrate and perpetuate hostility. It means now we see and understand Attempts or inspiration to divide us or make us hostile to one another as an inspiration or an objective of demonic powers from rulers, powers, and principalities looking to disrupt the intercession of Jesus because of what he's been promised. And if I see division as a disruption to the intercession of Jesus, maybe my consideration of partnering with it would be different. Because you can't consider division the same way when you conclude that it's a disruption to the intercession of Jesus. I'm not talking about between us and the world. We understand that there's light and darkness. We understand that the value system is different. We understand that the heart posture is different. We understand that the spirit that is alive and at work on the inside of us is different, which Paul concludes in Ephesians 2. The spirit that is now at work or present at work on the inside of the sons of disobedience. I'm not talking about the differences between the church and the world. We understand that we are in it, but we're not of it, John 17. We understand that we've come out of it and that we've actually entered into union with the man Jesus and that we are separate. Be ye holy even as I am holy. We understand that there is no real fellowship with light and darkness but that we are planted here to reach them by being a sign and a wonder. I'm not talking about the distinction between light and darkness, church and world. I'm talking about the inspiration at times that we yield our hearts and minds to, to create unique hostility and divisions inside of the family. This is what Paul's consideration is, which is why he starts in Ephesians 5 and verse 1 by saying, Be imitators of God. Laying your life down on behalf of a reconciliatory mission. Paul saw himself this way. He wasn't suggesting something to them that he wasn't actually uh, living in his own life or the way that he had interpreted his own life now in God. In 2 Corinthians 5, it's if any man is in Christ, that man is a new creature. And then he continues, and in verses 18, 19, he says, I now see myself as an ambassador of this great king. Like, my life doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm not just simply given over to my own agenda. I'm not doing my own thing. I'm not trying to protect my own unique interests, but I'm fully given over. I'm all in with this thing. I'm going to live as a representative. I see myself as an ambassador. God's given me power. He's filled me with his own spirit. I now interpret my own life, meaning, and mission in light of Jesus being king, me being radically aligned to him, and me now being an ambassador or a representative of his mission in the nations. That's how I see myself. And because of that, I see myself as bearing the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. Well, this is what he encourages in Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then he continues on before he gets to the relational stuff. He says things like, stop lying to each other. Again, he's digging into the nitty-gritty of how we actually do life together because how we actually do life together is what is the sign and the wonder, and it is the platform that becomes a demonstration for the rest of the world to know that God is answering the intercession of his Son. And then as we cross the threshold after a variety of relational interactions between husbands and wives fathers and children. You even find as you enter into Ephesians 6, slaves and masters, Paul is leaving no relational context untouched. But he's saying in every relational context, you've received power to live as an ambassador on behalf of the intercession of Jesus. And the intercession of Jesus to have a unified people that are mature and carry a joy and a glory that becomes a sign and a wonder, not because we don't ever go through anything, but it's because of the way we handle the things we go through. That brings us to the place where we choose to reconcile our differences rather than perpetuating the influence of powers and rulers on behalf of our differences to where we are deeply divided in heart, yet we show up and pretend in a relational proximity as if nothing is going on and we fabricate the enjoyment of family when in reality, deeply immersed in our hearts, we are hostile and divided. And it's because we're not shepherding our feelings and our thoughts is what Paul suggests. Because now we have these words, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And the idea is in the understanding of the whole scope of work that Paul has created in the book of Ephesians. Again, a relational context that answers the intercession of Jesus. Now he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Because he wants them to see if you don't think hell is going to try and destroy what it is that the father has promised his son. You are clueless as to one of the objects of spiritual warfare. But one of the objectives of spiritual warfare is to divide us. Is to make us hostile to one another. Is to get us to live in the prison of our offenses. And to create distance. Distance. To fabricate, to perform, to pretend, to religiously, if I could say it that way, with systems and images, relate to one another. That's not actual reality. And it's not reality because we've opened up our hearts and our minds to influence that longs to disrupt what it is that God has promised to deliver to his son. And this is one of the reasons Paul told the Corinthians, we don't wage war the same way that the world does. Our weapons are different. He says they're divine in nature. They have real power, even to the bringing down and the demolishing of strongholds. He says what? We bring every thought captive and make it obedient where not to my emotions not to what I'm able to intellectually justify not to where I can find the most agreement not to a cultural objective not to secret little agendas from within the life of the church no I make every thought captive and make it obedient to the man Jesus I bring every thought captive why Because this, most times, is the entry point of spiritual warfare. It's the planting of the demonic swirl. And before we know it, thoughts have lingered longer than they should have. And we've come into agreement with things we've been thinking that we should have never had. And once it has agreement, it establishes a root. And once it establishes a root, it builds or develops a stronghold. And it exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Which means things that I previously knew to be true, I'm now deceived. Because I didn't bring thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus. And in my deception, I've come into agreement with things that aren't actually real. And it's because I'm interacting with a misinformation campaign. And this disinformation or misinformation campaign has got me to buy into a voice I never should have listened to. And now, the things that I've been hearing over time, I started agreeing. And when I started agreeing, it established a planting. And that planting dug deep and created a root system. And that's now what the Bible would consider to be a stronghold. And you don't get a stronghold in a moment. You get a stronghold over time when you've not been shepherding your heart or your mind well. You get a stronghold over time when you've been dealing and dabbling and dating thoughts that you should not have ever been listening to, things that you should not have allowed to roam within the walls of your mind as long as they did, and because you did not immediately bring every thought captive. This is what Paul says is the wrestling. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but there's powers longing for a planting. Because powers are looking for a human host. And before we know it, we've come into agreement with thoughts. And those agreements have established a root system. And they've now built a stronghold. And now I interpret everything externally through the thoughts that I've come into agreement with internally. And now my lens my frame, my whole perspective, I'm now living in deception and I'm the only one that doesn't know it because that's the essence of being deceived. The essence of being deceived is the idea of wearing a pair of glasses and you're the only one that doesn't know you have them on. And everything about the way you see has now been compromised. But that is the agenda of rulers and powers is to plant a thought or a feeling in you that over time you're going to agree with. And once you agree with it, you begin to get conformed to an image of corruption. Because demonic agenda is looking for a human host. They must find a human vehicle that will think like them, feel like them to live out their agenda. They're looking to inspire sons and daughters or creation, human vehicles, men and women in order to sow or plant their character, their ideas, inspire thoughts in the hearts and minds of people. So that over time, people will begin performing under the influence of powers and principalities. And you begin to live out demonic agenda and objective at times through deception without even realizing what's actually happening. And we end up in the swirl. But Paul is saying you don't have to live as a prisoner of the swirl. You are now alive from the dead reigning above the influence of powers. And he says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. But he does imply that there is a wrestling. In 1 Corinthians 15, he tells them, When I was at Ephesus, I wrestled with wild beasts. I don't think he's talking about people that actually looked like jackals and boars and whatever other kind of uh, animal you want to consider. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about or implying the nature of spiritual warfare human agendas that have been compromised by demonic inspiration and people that are now living out things that have been planted deeply within. But Jesus is praying for a people and he's interceding for a family that is going to be a sign and a wonder because they won't live in the swirl. They won't give themselves to all of the different places and spaces where, let's just say, on a larger scale, have become so familiar to us that we endorse them and celebrate them. They won't give themselves to the political swirl seeking to divide. Jesus is going to have that people. They won't give themselves to all the cultural, ethnic swirl. That's so seeking to divide. They won't give themselves to the financial swirl where we relate to one another based off of stature, of positions and titles and corporate realities and bank account status. He's going to have a people that won't give themselves to the swirl of their own unique interests and prejudice that they're still trying to protect even though they claim an affection for the man Jesus that's alive from the dead and reigning above all the powers that are seeking to infiltrate what he's been promised with these things. He's going to have a people that don't give themselves to the inspiration of corruption. He is going to have it because he's interceding for it and his father is going to give him what he's praying for. And so he is going to have it. The question is, is he going to have it in me? And in order for that to be a consideration, I must consider how I'm shepherding my heart and mind. Because I can't see division the same when I understand it as compromise to the intercession of Jesus. Hear me, in any possible place where division is trying to advance, It is corrupting the intercession of Jesus. I'm talking about from within the life of the family. Again, we understand a clear divide between us and the world. But from within the life of the family, any of the relational differences that we are not longing for power to reconcile, but that we are giving way to and becomes a festering seedbed In our own hearts and minds, where now we are partnering with inspiration of corruption rather than discerning it and taking it captive and making it obedient to King Jesus, where we receive power to live as a people who are alive from the dead and reigning above the influence of the powers. That's how we become a sign and a wonder where, again, we have every reason to be divided. But when the world looks at the church, it makes the Trinity believable. Because they see in us a people that are wildly diverse. And we don't find our unity in our conformity. Because conformity is not real unity. We need diversity to enjoy real unity. And God has given us power to be reconciled. We should charge or feel a commissioning on our own lives. To be ministers of reconciliation. To carry the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. So that in our endeavors to actually become the answer to Jesus' intercession. We will not entertain even the smallest space or place where an inspiration towards division is being introduced. Where any of the thoughts, we bring every thought captive. You've got to be incredibly aware of the thoughts that you are having about people. This is the planting. You've got to be incredibly aware about the feelings that you are having towards people. This is Paul's charge in Ephesus. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we're wrestling from a place of influence and inspiration. And we recognize that there are enemy forces longing to compromise what it is that Jesus has been promised. They know that their day is dawning short and they will do everything they can from within their own perceived jurisdiction by way of inspiration to gain an entry point to a heart or a mind to sow thoughts so that over time they can infiltrate with their own agenda what it is that God seems to be doing. But Jesus says, I'm going to have a people. And this people are going to be one. And their oneness is going to make them a living demonstration. There will be glory on their unity. And the rest of the world will know that I am who I say I am. That my Father has sent me into the world. And that they belong to me. What would it look like For God to have a people, a family, a church as a covenant community. As a living demonstration that made the Trinity believable to the world around. Where they saw something in us that they knew they in their own power, intellect, or money weren't able to actually reconcile all of the differences that we've been able to reconcile. That we've received power from God's own life in order to not just become agents of reconciliation to the world around us, but to become agents of reconciliation to the family that surrounds us. And that from within that framework... It's not that our relationships are frail because they're only being preserved by the accommodation for our own offenses. But it's that we've actually gotten into the trenches. We've actually related to one another in real life. Things have come up. Things have been exposed. Things have been dealt with. Things have been reconciled. And God has a powerful people because they paid a price through the blood of Jesus to give him what it is that he's interceding for. This is the consideration that Paul says. There is a wrestling, and you have to be aware of what the wrestling is looking to accomplish. Because until you do, we may find our time or find ourselves in unique moments and seasons partnering with the agenda rather than discerning it and derailing it. We may find ourselves being given over in our thoughts, our feelings, conversations to things that are perpetuating the divide rather than reconciling it by God's grace and power. We don't find ourselves being imitators of God when we are perpetuating division. We find ourselves being imitators of God when we are laying our lives down on behalf of reconciliation. And Paul says, there's a wrestling that's going on. And you have to be aware so that you can actually stand in the day of evil. You must tend to your hearts and minds well in God. Right? I want to take a moment and pray for the people that Jesus has been promised. Because I believe that the Lord wants to freshly commission every willing heart this morning to be an agent and a weapon of reconciliation where we in every space, place and conversation that we bear responsibility will see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation. We'll see ourselves as bearing the ministry and the word of reconciliation if we have an interest in the intercession of Jesus being answered then we also have a powerful interest in reconciling differences and hostility because this is what he's interceding for I want a people that are one the same way that we are one I want a people that won't be compromised by all of the influence that the world is trying to saturate them with, a people that won't share the same political divisions that the rest of their city does. Man, what would that take? It would take God's power, and he's issued it by his own spirit. Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain in 2 Corinthians 6.1 but he says working together with him. It's time to work together with the grace of God, to live in power that's been made available to become what is the answer to the intercession of Jesus. A people that won't be so culturally hijacked by all of the agendas and movements, by all of the different cultural ebbs and flows by all of the different voices and faces and unique interest groups that continue to pop up that are trying to divide and create hostility. Man, no, 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 I'm gonna have a people that aren't compromised by those things. I'm gonna have a people that aren't compromised ethnically, a people that aren't compromised. I'm gonna have a people that are a sign and a wonder. I'm gonna have a people that carry my glory because they're gonna grow up, they're gonna become mature. They're going to become developed in a relational unity. And they're going to be a sign and a wonder, because that's what I'm praying for. They're going to shake a city because of what I'm able to develop in them relationally. They're going to be a family that preaches the power of the gospel through their unity. They're going to be a covenant community that the reality of their relationships are going to testify that I'm king over the nations. if we have an interest in Jesus getting his reward then we share an interest in the things that have been described and for the next several moments I'm going to ask you to stand up on your feet and to join me in a place of prayer and intercession where we can join Jesus this high priest this great intercessor that ever liveth to make intercession He's still praying the prayer of John 17 because the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't happened yet. He's still praying the prayer of John 17 because the moment of possession hasn't happened yet. He's praying the prayer of John 17. Make them one. So I want to take the next several moments and enter into a time of prayer To join Jesus in the place of prayer and intercession asking God that he would send the power of his spirit in order to reconcile the differences in the church that he would send the power of his spirit in order to make right all of the hostility the compromise the unique interests that are being celebrated throughout the landscape of the church's family No more political divide. No more denominational boundaries. No more social compromise and conversation. Come on, for the next few moments, I'm going to ask you to join me in the place of prayer. That Jesus would get what he's been promised that the answer to the intercession of Jesus would start in our own heart. Lord, make us agents, ministers of reconciliation. Lord, make us a people that live alive from the dead and above the influence of rulers and powers. Make us A people that become a sign and a wonder because we are no longer open to the voice and the inspiration of hostility and compromise and corruption. Make us a people that will not entertain division in any space or place in our relational harmony. Make us, make us a church family that is a covenant community that lives as a living demonstration that answers the intercession. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.